Jesus, you are over everything. Thank you. Thank you for your obedience. Obedience in that desert, in that garden, submitting yourself to the will of your Father. What an example of such humility, such lowliness. And now you are highly exalted because of your obedience to death on a cross. Your Father has highly exalted you and given you a name above every name. And it's at the name of Jesus that we bow this morning. Jesus, you're our hope in Lent. You're our joy in Lent. And as we approach Easter, getting closer and closer, we see you more clearly. Help us now by your spirit to see you more. Through your word, we pray for Pastor Blake. Help him to speak boldly as he ought to. Not fear of what we think, but only what you think, God. Give us ears to hear. Open hearts, open hands. And by your Holy Spirit, the power to obey. To not be hearers of the word only, but doers of what it says. So we thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being our example of submission and humility. And because of that, you are our hope in the wilderness. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated as we continue in worship. Well, hello, everyone. Good morning. If you wouldn't mind grabbing a copy of God's Word, whether digital or analog, and find your way to Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be continuing our series, the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> today we're going to be starting in verse uh, 21. So if you wouldn't mind making your way over to that, it would be great. So last week... We started talking about kind of a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, Jesus was talking with the Pharisees about 
well, talking with them about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and how he's come to fulfill it. And even makes a bold statement at the end about how you need a greater righteousness, a greater righteousness than that of the Pharisees, which would have been a shocking thing to say to the people. That'd be like talking to a devout Catholic and saying you need to be more righteous than the Pope. It would have been a very big deal to say, hey, the Pharisees, you need to be more righteous and holy than them to go to heaven. (gasps) It would have been terrifying to hear that. But he goes on, and he begins a new section. And he starts talking, uh, there's going to be coming up, that we're starting the first one today, there's about six more coming, where he says, or excuse me, five more coming, where he says something along the lines of, you've heard it said, dot, 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 but I say to you, where he starts to unpack some of the Old Testament understanding of things, some of the ways that the Pharisees understood what it meant to be righteous by Old Testament standards compared to what Jesus says is like, oh, y- you thought it was this, but really, it's more like this. And this is the first one of those that we're going to be diving into today. So if you do me a favor, <coughs> excuse me, and pray with me before we dive into the text, I would greatly appreciate it. Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to dive into it. We know, we know that you have given us your word that we might know you. It's not to learn facts, and it's not to learn trivia or information. It's to know you. So Jesus, we pray that as we dive into your word, that that is exactly what would take place, that you would move in us and you would move through your word, that we would come away from this time with a deeper understanding, a deeper appreciation, a deeper love for you because you have shown more of yourself and what you desire through your word. We pray that you would uh, keep away any hindrances, obstacles, any distractions, and that you would allow us to be focused in on you and what you have for us today. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (coughs) Okay, so Matthew chapter 5. Excuse me, I've got a lingering cough from a, a cold, so I might be coughing here and there. I apologize for that, but you've been warned, so there you go. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21, says this. You have heard that our ancestors were told, referring to the Old Testament believers, you have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. That seems pretty straightforward, right? Don't don't go around murdering people, and if you do, you'll, you'll be facing judgment. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple to understand that concept. But then he goes on in verse 22, and he says, But I say to you, if you were even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Kind of ramps it up a little bit. Starts with, hey, don't murder anybody. Oh, good, good, I got that. Okay, now, good, you didn't murder someone, though. Maybe some of us here, I don't know. But, you know, like that is something that generally people generally can say they haven't done that. But now he goes, okay, so now to be angry. He's not saying anger and murder is the same thing. He's not saying to be angry with someone is the same as murdering them. But he is saying that to be angry will also bring judgment. 
Now, for some of us, that might be a pretty, like, wait a second, what? Hang on a second. Being angry is not, a, is not bad. It's not a sin. Ephesians tells us, Ephesians 4, like, be angry and do not sin. So you can be angry without sin. And, and even Jesus, he got angry and he, he was perfect. He never sinned so clearly. And yes, but there's a difference between what's known as righteous anger and human anger. And there's two very different things. We're going to look a little bit more at that as we keep going in the text. But start with this. I say to you, if you are angry, or even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Understand how much, how serious, rather, God takes this. To be angry is to be bringing on judgment. To be standing before God, and now you are guilty. Why? Because you were angry. It's like, well, I have a right to be angry. Did you know what they did, what they said? I'm sure you feel justified in your anger. I'm sure you do. But you're not. But you don't know. I don't need to know. We all feel justified in our anger. Otherwise, we wouldn't be angry. But it's not justified. Right? Here's our first point. Um, Prideful anger condemns. Prideful anger condemns. It brings condemnation, not only upon us, but really upon, we're, we're condemning others in our anger is what we're doing. And this is our first thing, is understanding how that goes together. Because anger, truth be told, no one can make you angry. Did you know that? No one is capable of making you angry. Well, I don't know. Have you met my spouse? N- not, not mine. I mean, mine's awesome. But, like, I understand that's a normal thing people will say. Or have you seen what my kids do? But no one can make you angry. You choose to do that. Why do we get angry? Well, human anger goes like this. Because of my pride, I don't want to deal with my insecurities. I don't want to deal with what's going on inside, the negative things inside me, so I throw it externally at you. It's easier to be angry at you externally than to deal with what's going on inside me. Let's say someone insults you, and they say something really awful. Well, they insulted me, so I got angry. No, that's not what happened. They insulted you. That triggered an insecurity inside yourself about something that you don't want to believe is true, but you're afraid is true. And so then, rather than dealing with that, dealing with what's going on inside of you, you turn it pridefully, put up a wall, and say, your fault, I'm mad at you. That's what anger does. It's always a secondary emotion when we're talking about human anger. Always a secondary emotion. There's things that we're insecure about. Because if someone insults you, and it's not something you're insecure about, you don't care. I am sure people have insulted you. And you're like, whatever. And then people have insulted you, and oh, did the emotions flow. What's the difference? If you don't think it's true, if you see no validity to what they say, you don't care. What's happening is we're not dealing with what's actually going on. And so when God is talking about, hey, um, to be angry is to bring on judgment, basically we are taking our anger and we're throwing it at someone else. It's our pride that is creating that anger. It's our insecurities that's creating that anger. Nobody can make you angry. You're choosing that. Because it's easier emotionally to focus externally on others than to deal with what's happening inside of you. 
Now, some of you might be thinking that that's insane. Some of you might be thinking that, oh, no, 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 that's not, that's not what's going on. I promise you that it is. I promise you that it is. So why would God be so upset about anger? Why would he be so upset about these things of anger and this happening? Well, it starts off talking about to commit murder. Murder's a bad deal. Why? Because Genesis 9-6. Genesis 9-6 says this. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. Why? For God made human beings in his own image. As a human, you are made in the image of God. And because of that, to take that life, God is saying you are, you are desecrating the image that God has placed upon humanity. God's image, you desecrate that. So that's a problem. Well, similarly, for us to throw our anger against someone else, that person is an image bearer of God. And for us to unjustly throw that at them, well, hang on, I am just, I'm sure you think you're justified. But our human anger isn't justified and not justifiable Now, again, there's a difference between righteous anger and human anger. And let me uh, uh, throw this up here to take a look at. Righteous anger. Here's righteous anger. Does your anger come from a passion for God's glory and for his justice? If so, good, righteous anger. Or does it come because of your wounded ego? Human anger. Is your anger because you're angry over the evil You see the evil and it stirs up in you an urge to act on behalf of those that are being mistreated. That's a righteous anger. Or does it stir up in you just a thing to stand up for yourself? And I deserve human anger. Righteous anger. Does your anger move your heart to tears as you see the pain that sin causes? Or does it move your heart towards hardness and bitterness towards someone? And that last word there, I don't know why it's there. My fault. But someone. Human anger. There's a, there's a great difference. The anger that we see Christ display is always a righteous anger. It's anger over the pride, anger over the sin. Seeking that there would be repentance. Seeking that there would be restoration with God. It's always an anger about the evil. And it's not about the human aspect of things. It's about the spiritual aspect of things. When we're talking about anger in this text, we're talking about human anger. It says, <clears throat> excuse me, it says this in Proverbs 12, 12, 16. A fool is quick-tempered, but a wise person stays calm when insulted. How about this, James 1, 20. James 1, 20. Why is God so bent out of shape about anger? Here's why. Human anger, James 1, 20, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Your human anger produces no righteousness. What are we called to do? To be as Christians, Christ followers. We're called to be righteous, to live our lives rightly in the eyes of God. Your human anger, never possible for your human anger to be righteous. Not possible. So, If you're sitting here today and you're thinking about like all the different things that get you angry, whether it's about your team that lost or whether about that politician that you can't, what gets you angry? The question really shouldn't be what they did, what they said. It should be what is going on inside of me that's making me so angry at them. 
Because my heart, as a Christ follower, ought to be forgiveness. It ought to be reconciliation. It ought to be offering grace and offering the mercy that Christ has given me. That ought to be our response. So what we need to be looking at is not what they did that made me angry. What we need to be looking at is, God, what is happening in here? God, search me. Know my heart. What is happening in here that, is, that, that I'm not wanting to give them mercy? What is stopping me from giving them grace, the forgiveness that you have given me? Why am I, what is happening here? That's where you need to start. God, search me in this. In Ecclesiastes 7, 9, it says, Do not be quick to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of a fool. Anger lodges in a heart, the heart of a fool. Proverbs 14, 29. People of understanding control their anger. But a hot temper shows great foolishness. <clears throat> God makes, mixes no words on this. So if you walk, want to walk around your life thinking that you're justified in your anger, justified in the anger that you've built up. Some of us have built up this anger over something that happened years ago and we're just not willing to let it go. Listen, I understand some of you have gone through terrible things. I understand some people have said terrible things to you. But I also understand you have done terrible things. And you have said terrible things. And Christ has forgiven that. How can we not extend that forgiveness? If there's someone in this church that you're having an issue with, and you're holding on to anger with them, guess what? That's not okay. Not okay human speaking, not okay God speaking, not okay. You need to let that go. You need to seek reconciliation because what happens? Well, let's just take a look. Next part of the verse. Uh, to be angry is subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, <coughs> the word there for idiot is racha. It basically means um, like someone is empty. There's nothing to them. There's no substance. They're mindless. To call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. If you curse someone, the word there for curse is actually the word that we get, uh, English word, we get the word moron that comes from this. It's the idea that you are worthless. There is nothing to you. Because when we're angry at people, we take them and we take away their humanity. We're like, there's nothing in you of value. We take away and we deny we deny recognition of the God-given image of God in their life. That's why anger is such a big deal to God. Because you are made in God's image. Do you understand how awesome that is? That we're made in the image of God. God created a world, a universe, by speaking it into existence. And God is perfect. He is loving. He is good. And he is just. He is dominion. He is a relational God. All these amazing things of God that we have. Now, in fallen, limited versions, right, we're not perfect. We're fallen. We're not infinite. So <coughs> God is perfect in his love. We are not. He is infinite in his love. We are not. But we have the ability to love, be loved, know love, extend love. We have these limited versions of those attributes. But think about who God is. And he has made you in his image. And that person that you are holding on to bitterness with, that person you're holding on to anger 
they're also made in God's image. As much as you don't want to admit that, as much as you don't want to believe that, they are. Right? Paul talks about how we're the body of Christ. And some of us like to think of ourselves in the body of Christ as like, well, I'm the brain, I'm the heart, clearly. And the other person, you're the appendix. We can cut you right out. No, no, no. No. We are the body of Christ made in the image of God. And to hold on to that bitterness, to hold on to that anger, to not seek reconciliation, it's sin. It is sin. It's not okay. It's not everyone does. It's sin. Now, am I saying that because I'm perfect? By no means. I I struggle with with bouts of anger and things that I trust. I, I have my own issues here. I'm not preaching this because I've mastered this, but this is something I need myself. I was, <coughs> I had a professor uh, in college that was talking about how some people have this idea that you need to master things before you can preach on them. And he's like, if that's true, you can't preach on anything. Because as humans, we'll never get to that point. So I'm not preaching this as though I've mastered anger. But this is something we need to understand. God takes this seriously. It's not something we can justify, dismiss, or just let it go. Because God doesn't. C.S. Lewis says this. If some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, whom we (coughs) work with, whom we marry, whom we snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What he's saying is this. There's uh, human beings, you've never encountered someone who is a mere mortal. You will outlive Every dynasty, every nation, every ideology, you will outlive every one of those things. Why? Because you, when you die on this earth, you know you don't stop there, right? You continue on for all of eternity. The question is, which home do you reside in? With God or without? And when he says that we're immortals, either immortal horrors, referring to the tragedy that befalls, not tragedy, the justice that befalls those who enter into hell, or everlasting splendors, the glorious nature that we will have as we enter into eternity with Christ, right? It's either hell or heaven. Everyone you meet is an immortal being that will live for eternity. Do you treat them that way? Do you treat them as though your interactions, you're dealing with someone, it's like you're made in the image of God and you go on for eternity and the way I interact with you ought to be a way that brings you closer to that eternity with Christ and not push you further away from it. Our anger needs to be resolved, needs to be dealt with. Christ talks of this himself. Verse 23 says this. So, So if you are presenting a sacrifice, uh, Old Testament times, and I realize we're in the New Testament, Matthew and Jesus and all that, but Jesus, before his resurrection, was still living under Old Testament law. 
and Old Testament times, which technically kind of includes this, means that you would give sacrifices all throughout the year. Sacrifices of animals, of bread, of all sorts of different things. But these sacrifices were basically, it was an act of service. It was an act of worship to God. And it was something that God even mandated. Very important to God. God very, very explicitly in the Old Testament tells us not to neglect the sacrifices as these Old Testament believers. And so he's saying, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you. So the first part of this, we're dealing with our anger against someone else. Now we're dealing with someone else's anger against us. You remember that someone has something against you. What do you do? Leave, verse 24, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice. First you reconcile, then you come back. This God-ordained, God-mandated aspect of service and worship of sacrifices. God's like, okay, no, you're going to put that on hold until you've dealt with this. Listen up. Your horizontal earthly, these in-out relationships, we talk about up, in, and out, your up relationship with God is never, never going to be in a healthy place. When you're in relationships, when your relationships with other followers of Christ is not good. It, it just won't. So God's like, hey, leave the sacrifice and deal with the issue. Go and be reconciled. God desires that we would reconcile with one another, that there's restoration there. Now, <clears throat> I understand that just because we are called to reconcile doesn't mean reconciliation is always possible. Why? Well, forgiveness doesn't require two people. If I'm angry at you, I can choose to forgive you regardless of where you're at. I can say, I've forgiven that, I'm, not, I'm letting that go, I'm not holding this against you. It doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what you do, I can choose to forgive you. Reconciliation is a two-person path. If the other person's not willing to reconcile, that can be an issue, right? Then you don't, you, what can you do? You do what you can. You do what you can to make it right. Apologies, whatever that means. You do what you can to make it right. It says in Romans 12, 8, excuse me, 18. Romans 12, 18. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. You do all that you can. And if they're not willing to meet you, that's on them. You do what you can do. Right, first part, we're talking about our anger towards others. We let that, we forgive that. Second part, now, we are seeking the forgiveness. We are seeking that reconciliation. I've had relationships in my life where people have walked away, where the relationship has been severed because of things I've done or because of things that they've done. We've ha been on both sides of this. And there's sometimes where I've done something, I go and I seek reconciliation and, and the relationship's restored. And there's been times when I've sought reconciliation and the relationship was not restored. You can only do so much in seeking reconciliation, and I get that. So this is not to say that if you don't reconcile with everyone, well, then you're never going to be good with God. No, you do what you can do. You do what you can do. And you know if you've sought reconciliation. You know if you sought forgiveness. You know if you've done that. 
It says this in Hebrews 12, 14, work at living in peace with everyone. Work at living a holy life. Living at peace with others is part of living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. We, we work at this. Right? Reconciliation is not something that just, magic, here it is. Now, you know, you know, you, you, you've had, you have issues, right? I do, you do. We have issues. And we know that reconciliation doesn't just magically happen. Whether it's with a spouse, with a sibling, with a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, a parent, a child, reconciliation doesn't just magically happen. Peace with one another doesn't just happen because we're all just such good people. You work at this. And sometimes it's a lot of work. But we do what it takes to make peace. Colossians 3, 13. <coughs> it tells us to make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others, right? So when we are in a place that needs to be the one forgiving, you give that forgiveness. And what happens with forgiveness? What happens is you let it go. But what do we do? Oftentimes, what do we do? Oftentimes, our forgiveness comes with, okay, I'll forgive you if, if, followed by whatever. And half the time, we don't even say what the if is, right? We just magically expect them to know. That's not forgiveness. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is, I'm, I'm letting it go. Imagine if that's how God was with every time. He's like, okay, I'm going to forgive you, but, but. Well, that'd be, that's all, that'd be awful. That's not the example we have in Christ. The example we have in Christ is we come to him. He welcomes us in. The forgiveness, the blood is shed. The forgiveness is granted. And there's the relationship. There it is. It's not a whole, okay, I'll take you, but first you've got to do A, B, C, D. That's not how it is with God. So that should not be how it is with us. We seek reconciliation. And when it's not possible, you leave the door open. Leave that door open. There's, there's been times where I've sought reconciliation with someone, and in that time, nothing happened. Right? There was no reconciliation that took place, but we left the door open, and as time went on, then we were able to reconcile later. And I thank God for the, for the times we were able to reconcile later. But you leave the door open. Now, I do want to be clear about something. <coughs> as we're talking about all this, I am not talking about leaving a door open for abuse. Right? When we're talking about anger, we're talking about forgiveness, we're talking about reconciliation, I understand that there's circumstances that happen in people's lives where what's happening is abuse. And we're not talking about submitting yourselves to that. Right? We, we, we as Christians are not called to submit ourselves to other people's sins. We don't submit ourselves, we don't open that door for abuse. There's a big difference between forgiving and letting go and opening that door for abuse. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about you don't hold this against them. You don't hold, now, again, if there's abuse happening in someone's life, I'm not saying that you just pretend it never happened. That's also not what we're called to do. You deal with sin. You deal with it. You confront it. You deal with it. But what I am saying is you still forgive. We still forgive. And when we are the ones in the wrong, we seek the forgiveness. Because God desires reconciliation. 
So as we keep going on in the text, so then you go reconcile that person. Then you come and offer your sacrifice to God, verse 25. When you are on your way to the court, so now here's another example. We had one um, issue we're talking about with murder and anger. Now we're talking about reconciliation with sacrifice. Here's the third one he gives. When you're on your way to the court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly, otherwise your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you'll be thrown into prison. So now here's our third thing. Here's an example where there's an issue between two people. We don't know what the issue is. We don't know what's happened. We don't know who's right, and we don't know who's wrong. All we know is that there is an issue, and that they did not reconcile it. (coughs) They did not make an attempt to reconcile it, and now it has escalated to the point where standing in front of court. And he's like, hey, you're going to want to deal with this before it gets to the judge. Because once it gets to the judge, whatever the judgment is, that's it. You want to deal with this first because there's going to be judgment coming in this. Whatever this relationship thing, whatever this issue is, you deal with it now before it's too late. We need to reconcile quickly before it's too late. Before it's too late. Now, this is talking of a human example with an actual, there's some kind of debt, it seems it must be paid, because verse 26 says, and if that happens, surely, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. So this is some kind of debt, some kind of thing that needs to be repaid here. But this is also similarly true, spiritually speaking, you need to reconcile with one another. You need to seek that with one another before it's too late. Before it's too late to do so. Now, as Christians, we are given a ministry of reconciliation. It says in 1 Corinthians that we are, <coughs> excuse me, we are, or 2 Corinthians, that we are to reconcile with one another, reconcile, or to be reconciled to God, and they were given this reconciliation ministry to reconcile others to God. This is our, our chief example. God has reconciled our relationship with him. He has restored our relationship with him. And so then what are we charged to do? After we've been reconciled to God, to be reconciled with others and try to have them reconcile with God. So let me ask you, if your mission from God is to help others understand what it means to be reconciled to God, to have the relationship with God restored, but yet the example you set is one where you do not seek reconciliation, you don't seek restoration, you hold on to your anger, you let the risks take place. What kind of testimony is that? What kind of example is that for a, for a world that is in desperate need to know God? So therefore we're called to reconcile before it is too late to reconcile with our God. <coughs> in 2 Corinthians 5, Verse 18 through 20, let me just read the passage. It says this, And all this is a gift from God. All this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. 
we speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. You are God's ambassadors. Your job, whether you're in the church or outside of the church, is to be the ambassador of Christ. What is an ambassador? An ambassador speaks for a king, speaks for the leader of the nation. They make treaties, they make decisions, they they speak on behalf of the king. We have the king of kings. The way we live our life, we are to speak on behalf of the king. To live, to act as the king would live, as the king would act. Why? Because that is our job as his ambassadors. So whatever is happening in your relationships with others, whatever is happening with people in this church, outside this church, your family, whatever the context is, what are you doing? Are you forgiving it? Are you seeking that restoration? Are you holding on to it? Letting yourself be more and more and more bitter about it. Our anger is not justified as much as we want to believe it is. It just isn't. We are called to be the ones who lay down our pride, who lay down our issues to deal with what's really happening, our insecurities. God, work in me. God, work in me that I can forgive. Because I understand sometimes it's hard to forgive. (coughs) Sometimes it's really hard to forgive. Sometimes it's like, God, I want to forgive that person, but God, God, help me forgive. And I get it. I get it. I do. I'm not saying it's always easy to forgive. Sometimes there are some deep, deep wounds. And I get that. But it doesn't change the fact that we are called to strive for that. To release that. To forgive that. Because here's the truth. Here's the hard truth, loved ones. The only reason we don't forgive others, singular one reason we don't forgive others, is because we, in our arrogance, are so blind to the depths of our own sin and how our sin has offended God, we are so blind to the reality of that that we don't see the grace we have been given. Because if we really saw fully the grace that we have been showered with because of God forgiving our sin then we would be extending that to others. Again, I understand it's not easy to forgive sometimes. I get it. But are you striving towards that? Are you striving towards reconciling your relationships? Because I'm telling you, it is important to God. It is important to God. In this text, we see that God sees reconciling with someone as even more important than giving sacrifices, which in the Old Testament was huge. So when you come to church on Sunday morning ready to give your sacrifice of worship, pause at the door for a second. Do you need to deal with something? Do you need to deal with your relationships first? Do you need to deal with your spouse? Do you need to deal with your parents, with other people in this church? Before you come to Sunday morning service, deal with it first, then come in. Why? Because God is telling us how much he values this. So we, 
me to value this just as much. It's not easy. It can be very difficult at times to control. Proverbs, Proverbs is like if God had a Twitter. That's basically Proverbs. And he just starts shooting out all these random passages all throughout Proverbs. Read it, give it. If you haven't read Proverbs, all throughout it, like just constantly he'll be talking about, okay, and so then dealing with money. Oh, and by the way, anger. And then he starts talking about, okay, and so like lust. And, oh, and, and anger. Oh, and, and like constantly peppered throughout Proverbs. He just throws in verses about like, deal with anger. Deal with it. A, a, a harsh word. And like constantly throughout Proverbs. It's all over the place. Why? Because Proverbs is the book of wisdom. And so peppered through the book of wisdom from God is constantly reminding us, deal with your anger. Deal with these issues. We have to. If you want to live a life that is holy, that is honoring to God, it's not negotiable, not optional. We have to. And if you're sitting here and you're like, I don't don't know how. Well, come and talk with any of our pastors, any of our elders. We would love to sit down with you and talk with you about some things. We'd love to pray with you, meet with whatever, whatever it takes. Because this is not a church where everyone's happy and has everything put together. This is a church of a bunch of messed up people. We have our junk. And this is a church where we come together to work through that for the glory of Christ. So, all that to say this, deal with your anger. Work on these relationships. God values them. So should we. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for all that you have done for us. It is so easy to forget, to neglect the relationships that you have placed us in all around. But God, we know full well that the only way, the only way that we can be in right relationship with you is through Christ. And we know that because of the forgiveness of Christ, we are called to forgive one another. So God, I pray that you would work in our lives. Take away those strongholds, God. Dissolve the bitterness that's there. That we would seek you and we would seek to be restored with others. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.